This is episode 65 of the CB Northwest and Camp Tadmore Events Podcast. This episode goes back to our 2011 annual enrichment conference, Choose to Love or Die. This is session one, Monday night with Dave Anderson. Thanks, Jeremy. It is uh, really a privilege to be here. Uh, I, a lot of times when I'm privileged to go speak someplace, it's usually because people will ask Alex to come and he can't, and then it's kind of like, okay, we'll take him, I guess. And so that's kind of been the story of my life. But it, it, it is really a privilege just to be here and, and be able to open God's Word. I hope it will be a service uh, for you. hope that you'll feel served. Um, just a quick tidbit. I, I'm from Minnesota. I uh, went to undergraduate. Yes, go Vikings. Uh, went to, sorry. Um, Went to undergraduate in Colorado and started attending Littleton Bible Chapel and uh, kind of just moved into a mentoring relationship with, with Alex uh, about nine years ago. Started uh, pastoring a, a Baptist church, was there for about four years, and then about four years ago uh, transitioned over to Littleton Bible Chapel where I'm uh, at today. Uh, I've married. My wife's name is Lana Lee, beautiful wife. We've got two little kids, a little girl and a little boy, Molly and Ryle. And uh, again, I'm full-time at the church. So it's, it is honestly a huge privilege for me to be here. I am honored to bring God's Word. If you haven't, you can turn your Bibles to the book of Revelation, chapter 2. I've been called to sort of sound the alarm of lovelessness as we see it in this epistle. In the words of our Lord, uh, before we begin, would you just join me in a word of prayer? Just want to ask you as you close your eyes and bow your heads, just just to ask the Lord to speak to you, ask the Holy Spirit to minister to your heart. Uh, Maybe there needs to be repentance, remembering, doing the works you did at first. But just take a moment right now and just ask the Lord to speak to you. My Father, what a privilege it is to gather together in this family reunion. And uh, Lord, we turn our attention now to you, to your word. We would just ask, Lord, that you would speak to us and give us much grace. Lord, I think of those who may be struggling with sin or with guilt or with condemnation or with failure or just generally need encouragement. Would you encourage us and lead us now in our time? You are the sovereign Lord and we bow down to you. You are majestic and you are holy. I pray that we would get a grand vision of who you are and and of your words to this church in Ephesus. Oh Lord, may it pierce our hearts. May we take you seriously. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. I'm sure you've uh, used Google Maps before. Actually, it never ceases to amaze me, but it's incredible how you can look at virtually any place in the world. From your home, you can look up continent of Africa and look at it as a whole and 
zero in on a particular country like Kenya and zero in on a particular city like uh, Kitali, Nakuru, or zero in on a particular address, on a particular church. This is true. You can really, from your home, your study, your computer, you can look at almost any church in the world. But it's interesting, we can only really see the roof. We can't see the worship. We can't see the singing. We can't see the spirit of the church and what that church is like. But there is one who, who sees the church, who walks among the church. He can perceive the corporate spirit of a church. And he does it without technology. And he doesn't just look at the roof, but he walks among the churches. And, and he can sense and diagnose the spirit of the church. And he's been doing this for 2,000 years. Uh, he has assessed the spirit of your church. Imagine if the Lord Christ were to give a diagnosis of your church, what would it be? Honestly, I shudder to think about it. What would it be? It would be unnerving to say the least, but again, there's a sense in which our Lord has already done this. He's given an evaluation through the letters to the seven churches of Asia Minor, modern-day Turkey, He addresses the problems and the victories, the strengths and the weaknesses that are common even in our churches today. And so Christ's evaluation ought to be paramount to our concern. What has the Lord said about these churches? You know, a lot of times we can get hung up on church growth strategies or what the latest book says, the latest trends, but I want us to all agree that What our Lord says matters more than anything else. What has Jesus said to the churches? I want to read the text, Revelation 2, verses 1 through 6. To the angel of the church in Ephesus, write, The words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand, who walks among the seven golden lampstands, I know your works, your toil and your patient endurance and how you cannot bear with those who are evil but have tested those who call themselves apostles and are not and found them to be false. I know you're enduring patiently and bearing up for my name's sake and you've not grown weary but I have this against you that you've abandoned the love you had at first. Remember therefore from where you've fallen Repent and do the works you did at first. If not, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. Yet this you have. You hate the works of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. Let me give you six points if you're a note taker. The first one is this. Christ's self-description or John's vision of Christ. This is where we need to start. Before we go any further, we need to be sure that we get a stranglehold grasp of John's vision of the majesty and the authority of Jesus. There is no one in the universe who is like him. There is no one who has his power and his position. 
he has no equal in his majesty. And here we see him. He, he has no equal. He's incomprehensibly great. And he alone does two things. Number one, he holds in his right hand the seven stars, the seven angels of the churches. And these angels aren't small. We read in Revelation, one has, you know, one foot in the sea, one on land. I mean, a single angel comes down and can take out an entire city. And our Lord holds seven of them in his right hand. He, he is the all-powerful, sovereign Lord. Do you see it? He's the all-powerful, sovereign Lord. All things are under his control. That's the vision of John. Number two, he walks among the seven golden lampstands, these churches, and he walks among them with complete authority to judge. We can't do this, but he can, and he does. And these churches are of precious value to him. That's why they're called golden, and they're lampstands. By the way, you're church, I should say the Lord's church that you're in, is precious to him. And it's a lampstand. These are lampstands. They are light bearers in a dark world. And that's why they're called lampstands. Are you catching the vision of Christ? Because I, I think there's a sense in which if we don't get this, the rest of the passage is sort of numb. He is great. He's magnificent. He is the sovereign Lord. Amen? Amen. If we have a small vision of Christ, it ruins things. It perverts things. There was a lady uh, in Denver who uh, went to go buy a cross at a store. I heard this story, assuming it's true. I think C.J. Mahaney was the one I heard it from. Went to a a store and and, uh, said to the clerk behind the counter, I'd like to take a look at that cross. And the clerk sort of moved things around and said, "Uh, do do you want the plain one? Or the one with the little man on it? My brothers and sisters, there isn't a little man on the cross. He's not on the cross at all. He's the sovereign Lord. All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Who says that? This is our Lord. And he holds the, the angels in his right hand. He has the power to discern. He has the power to say whatever he wants. And we better listen. So what does he say? Number two, Christ's commendation of the church. He says some good things about this church. It wasn't easy being a church in Ephesus. It's a dark, pagan city. Expositor R.H. Charles says Ephesus was a hotbed of every kind of cult and superstition. You've got the pagan temple of Artemis, Roman Diana. Uh, You've got uh, part of the law... That uh, in the city that, that you were to uh, worship the, the emperor, the imperial cult, emperor worship, a required duty of every citizen. Prosperous trade, port city, just rife with sexual immorality. Knowing this, the Lord graciously acknowledges their toil and their patient endurance. He says, I know that you, you cannot bear with those who are evil. He commends them. Well done. You cannot bear with those who are evil. Good job. And then he says to them, he also praises them for testing those who call themselves to be apostles 
and are not. We've got some people who claim to be apostles. They have most of the New Testament at this point, and they're going through, like the Bereans, searching the scriptures diligently and saying, wait a minute, you're not apostles. The Lord says, well done. You're a discerning church. Good job. They loved the truth. They hated falsehood. They were role models of, of robust theological vigilance. The Lord says, well done. Way to be. They were defenders of the truth, defenders of, of the gospel, uncompromising in their stand for biblical principles. And for this, the Lord praises them. Good job. Number three, we also know that, that the Ephesians faced incredible conflict. You are enduring patiently and bearing up for my namesake, and you've not grown weary. Okay, we could just stop right here. This church could have written a best-selling book on, on successful churches and ministry. What a wonderful church! But all is not well. All is not well. Something is fundamentally wrong. And Jesus Christ puts his finger right on the problem. It's a loss of love. In light of all the commendable qualities of this church, we, we actually might even think Christ's complaint is somewhat trivial. But in his eyes, the church had, quote, fallen. It had abandoned the love it once had. Thus our Lord says, I have this against you. I don't know about you, but I don't ever want to hear those words from our Lord. I have this against you. Number three, Christ's complaint. Chapter 2, verse 4. I have this against you. You've abandoned the love you had at first. Literally, I'm reading out of the ESV, but literally in the Greek text, you have abandoned your love, comma, the first. The emphasis is on the adjective first. And so the love they abandoned refers to their love as it was first expressed at the beginning of their Christian lives, together in the church body. Jesus doesn't say, you have no love. Okay? He says, you've abandoned the love you had at first. Their love is not what it used to be. While they still had some measure of love because they're, they are believers, they're enduring hardship for his namesake. I mean, it seems like these are believers, but they no longer possessed the kind of love they had in their early years as a church. They still love the Lord, but not like they did at first. They still loved one another, but not like before. They had a great beginning to a church, but now it's kind of fizzled out. People Magazine years ago had, had an uh, article, The Greatest Weddings of All Time. Uh, they had people like uh, Brad Pitt and uh, uh, Jennifer Aniston, Prince Charles and Princess Diana, uh, Ted Turner, Jane Fonda, Marilyn Monroe and Joe DiMaggio. All of them apparently had great weddings. <laughs> and that's about all. See, their love for Christ and for one another brought joy and, and creativity and freshness and spontaneity. 
energy to their life and to their work. But now the energy source is depleted. Their work had become mundane, sort of just mechanical, really, routine, perfunctory. Charles Darwin, maybe you've heard this before, I've always found this quote interesting. He says, up to the age of 30 or beyond it, poetry of many kinds gave me great pleasure. Formerly, pictures gave me considerate pleasure. And music, very great delight. But now for many years, I cannot endure a line of poetry. I have also lost almost any taste for pictures or music. I retain some taste for fine scenery, but it does not cause me the exquisite delight it formerly did. My mind seems to have become a kind of machine for grinding general laws out of large collections of facts. See, there are various works which sprang from this former love had now vanished. It was gone. You know, uh, we don't know exactly what the object of their lost love is. It's not stated, but... The text doesn't say it was love for Christ or love for other believers. So it's best then to understand Jesus to mean Christian love in general, which would include love for God, love for one another, love for the church, love for the lost, love for the word, love for fellowship. Now, Jesus uses strong words. There's, there's no doubt about it. Strong words, and he squarely places the responsibility of this loss of love on them. It's not the elders' fault, not the pastor's fault. He places it on them. You can't blame anybody else for this. So Christ expresses his displeasure with this church. You think about this church. I was just reading in the uh, this morning in the plane, Acts nineteen. <laughs> It's almost comical how amazing this chapter is. You've got Paul preaching in the lecture hall of Tyrannus, you know, five hours a day, five days a week. You've got people, you know, uh, getting delivered from demons. You've got, you know, people burning magic books. And even the economy has changed because people aren't buying idols and miracles happening. You know, people yelling in the, you know in the amphitheater for two hours. Great as Artemis of the Ephesians. Try yelling anything for two hours. Great as Artemis of the Ephesians. Riot breaking out gospel. This was the start of their church. Incredible what they saw. The apostle Paul started your church. How would you like that? And yet they had lost their first love. It had diminished. It had faded. Number four, the problem of lost love. You know, every church... Every church has its own personality, uh, has its own identity, its own distinctives, its own gifts, its own uh, atmosphere, its own culture. This is true. You even see this in uh, churches in the New Testament. You know, Philippi is a giving church, the Berean church. But the one quality that should permeate every church and every believer even beyond giftedness and, and beyond personality, is love. It's love. That's what Jesus is saying. So let me ask you a question. This goes for everybody, but particularly to the leaders. Does a Christ-like spirit of love permeate the atmosphere of your church? This is a question you need to answer this week and think about. 
what is, and diagnose, what is the spirit of your church? Is it a cold church? People walk in. Is it a friendly church? Is it a doctrinaire church? Is it an affectionate church? What is the spirit of your church? Again, this Ephesian, this church in Ephesus had all these wonderful things. They loved the word. They loved, they were discerning. All these excellent things, but they didn't have love. They had lost their first love. D.A. Carson, one of our greatest evangelical New Testament scholars, wrote an article on Revelation 2.4. He says this, They still proclaim the truth, but no longer passionately love him who is the truth. They still perform good deeds, but no longer out of love, brotherhood, and compassion. They preserve the truth and witness courageously, but forget that love is the great witness to the truth. It's not so much that their genuine virtues have squeezed love out, but that no amount of good works, wisdom, and discernment in matters of church discipline, patient endurance, and hardship, hatred of sin or disciplined doctrine, can ever make up for lovelessness. Francis Schaeffer said this years ago. He said, we must ask, do I fight merely for doctrinal faithfulness? This is like the wife who never sleeps with anybody else, but never shows love to her own husband. Is that a sufficient relationship in marriage? No, 10,000 times no, Schaefer says. Yet if I'm a Christian who speaks and acts for doctrinal faithfulness, but do not show love to my divine bridegroom, I'm in the very same place as such a wife. What God wants from us is not only doctrinal faithfulness, but our love day by day. Not in theory, mind you, but in practice. There's a story that Alex has told a number of times of just an example of lovelessness. There was a uh, a Bible preacher who uh, came to a church to preach and a uh, gifted, gifted Bible teacher. And he came and he, he fellowshiped with the believers before the service began when there was prayer time. He was uh, praying and, and uh, praying for the people, praying for people to be uh, saved and come to Christ and uh, preached a wonderful message. And after the service goes to the front of the door as people are exiting greeted everybody there with a smile and was the last person to leave and uh, goes to the family he was staying with and had long, nice conversations in the Lord, wonderful fellowship. He spent the night there before he took off. And then he was invited back about 15 years later. And this time he came and he didn't pray before the service and he preached a, a polished message. It was a good message. It was sound. It was theologically squeaky clean. It was right on. And, but afterwards, he went to the door and you know, exchanged pleasantries for a few minutes and said, I really have to get back to the hotel. By the way, here's, here's a bill for honorarium. And, and he said, you know, uh, not that, that some of those things are necessarily wrong, but but the spirit had changed. Clearly, those who knew the man could discern things had changed. Uh, his love that he displayed 15 years earlier wasn't there. His love had diminished and faded. We need to ask ourselves the same question. Has our love faded? 
Is it what it used to be? Number five. Here's a legitimate question. Why is love so important? Number five. Why is love so important? Why is the loss of love so serious? I mean, why does it distress our Lord so deeply? Why is, let's ask this, why is the threat of judgment so severe? Why is it a life or death issue for a local church? Well, the answers are provided by Christ himself and those he commissioned as apostles. I want us to just look briefly at, at six passages. The number one, the first one is this. Jesus taught that the greatest and first commandment is to love God completely, totally, unreservedly, with all one's heart, with all one's soul, with all one's mind. Matthew 22, Mark 12. The sum of Jesus' commandments, of God's commandments in the Old Testament, of all religious service to God, can be summed up in this first priority of loving God. This is basic. Love God with everything you have. Okay? There's nothing more fulfilling. There's nothing more right. There's nothing more rewarding than loving the Lord our God. That's the greatest commandment. Number two, though. Jesus declared that the second commandment's like the first. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Matthew 22, 39. So Jesus makes love for God and love for neighbor inseparable companions. He, he summarizes the heart of genuine religion, of true spirituality. Love God, love neighbor. All moral conduct summarized in this double command. On these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. There is no other commandment greater than these. And so Christ's followers, that's us, are to be marked not only by total devotion to God, but by a sacrificial love and service to our neighbor. We're to be marked by that. Love God, love neighbor. By the way, it goes beyond that, just as an aside, to love enemies, love your persecutors, love the unlovely. Number three, true discipleship requires denying self and loving him above all others. Here's a verse that's astounding. Matthew 10. Whoever loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. Whoever loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. And whoever does not take his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. All other relationships, even the closest family ties, become idolatrous. When God isn't love first. I love my kids. Get home from, from church. I just adore wrestling with them. Love them. Love my wife. And yet listen to our Lord's command. Love me more. I come first. This is a serious command. More than children, more than business, more than hobbies. Let's be honest and humble here. I'm not asking you to raise your hand or come forward. Do you love God first? Do you love God most? Number four. 
Jesus left his followers a new commandment. He said, a new commandment I give to you. This, again, is astounding. That you love one another just as I've loved you. By this all people will know that you are my disciples. Now you may be asking, well, that doesn't sound new. I mean, in the Old Testament, that's repeated time and time again. The Shema of Israel, Deuteronomy 6, love the Lord your God. Leviticus, Hosea, clearly in the Old Testament. I mean, this is not new, but it's a new standard. It's a new standard. Just as I've loved you, you do likewise. Powerful. Powerful. So love is to be the distinguishing mark of Christ's followers. By the way, no ancient philosopher ever taught anything even close to this. Plato, Aristotle, Kant, Russell, they, they never even came close to, su to such far-reaching concepts about love. No political figure from Caesar to Churchill has ever made such demands upon his followers to love. No religious leader from Buddha to Confucius or Muhammad ever commanded his followers to love one another as he loved them and gave his life for them. Yet our Lord does to us. Love one another. You know, I think of Ephesians 5. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church. Well, we naturally think of, well, how did he love the church? He died for the church. He suffered for the church. He suffered long for the church. But that application is to everyone, to one another, just as I have loved you. Love unto death. <laughs> Let me say that again. You're to be like Jesus and love unto death. Wow. Number five. John, the beloved disciple of Christ, declared that God is love. <laughs> 1 John 4, 8, God is love. Now, to, under, to even comprehend this statement, we need to examine just for a moment the Trinity. William G.T. Shedd says, Christianity in the last analysis is Trinitarianism. If you take out of the New Testament, God the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit, there is no God left. At the heart of the Christian doctrine of love is the triune nature of God. God is love. And the relationship of the Godhead is love. So we, we can't even get close to following this unless we understand this basic proposition that God is love. So when Christians aren't mimicking that, it doesn't even make sense. What are you doing? God is love. And yet, here's how you're acting. All love, says Kelly Capick, is but a reflection or shadow of intra-Trinitarian love. It's just a reflection and a shadow of the Trinity. There has eternally existed a dynamic, a social relationship between the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit in love. God is Love. So this actually, this, this statement, God is love, actually supports his main appeal, the same John, to love one another. 
Uh, Love is from God. Whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Right? So, So to not love one another in the family of God is a serious sin. Because God is love. Lastly, number six. Paul called love the more excellent way of living. This is the last reason why love is so important. It's the more excellent way. We'll look at this more tomorrow night, but just in a paraphrase, Paul says, basically, look, you can speak in the tongues of men and of angels. That's great. Corinthians love their spiritual gifts. Hey, that's wonderful. If you don't have love, it, come, it amounts to this. You can even be a martyr. Sacrifice your body to the flames. How could that not be an act of love? But if you do it without love, it amounts to this. So nothing is of value in God's eye if it does not flow from love. And I just want to mention this. We, we need, I need, to correct the habitual formalism. It's such a danger. Going through the motions... Again, when people attend your assembly, do they find a warm, friendly, welcoming atmosphere? Uh, Do they see Christ-like compassion, a loving family, genuine care, Christian hospitality, unselfish generosity, joy in the Lord, spiritual vitality, people reaching out to minister to a suffering and lost world, or do they, do they sense an impersonal gathering of people? Just mechanical, rote tradition. Going through the motions. A proud spirit, a critical spirit, an angry group. It's like one person said, I'm, I'm a black belt Baptist. I'm Baptist and I'm mad about it. Good for you, buddy. What kind of spirit do they sense? A contentious group? How would the Lord Jesus evaluate your church? Lastly, number six, Christ's remedy. Christ's remedy. What we learn from Revelation 2, we must never forget. That an individual or a church can have sound doctrine, be faithful to the gospel, Show fidelity to the gospel. Be morally upright, upstanding, above reproach. Be a hard worker, but be lacking in love and therefore displeasing to Christ. See, love can grow cold while outward religious performance uh, seems acceptable, even praiseworthy. And here's the danger, and I hope you can catch it and see it. We have a tendency... To, to trust in external, externals, external religious performance. We can be like the Pharisees who tithe mint and, and, and every herb but neglect justice and the love of God. So it's possible, and oh, my brothers and sisters, I want you to feel it. It's possible for us to go through the motions and, and have a form of religion. The Lord says, you've lost your first love. There's a a physical condition, a medical condition called cardiomyopathy. It's uh, where a heart, 
begins to not function well, it weakens, the muscle weakens, and it's no longer able to pump blood efficiently through the body and through the veins. And slowly, if, if intervention isn't, you know, doesn't take place, the body just continues to digress and continues to weaken. And that's what was going on in Ephesus. They had a, a spiritual case of cardiomyopathy. And they were digressing. It wasn't getting better. It was actually getting worse. And let the Spirit of God just speak to you right now. Maybe this is you. I know the Lord's convicted me. Well, this spiritual disease, praise the Lord. Praise God. He's so gracious. But there is a remedy. He does offer a remedy. And he calls the Ephesians to do three things. To remember, to repent, and to do. Let's make a few comments on this. Remember. This is the first imperative that he gives. Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen. Jesus says they've fallen, which is just a massive statement. They've backslidden. They are not what they used to be spiritually, but they are to remember. Uh, they're to, to recollect past feelings and emotions, actions, not, not in a passive sense or even a sentimental daydreaming, like, oh, the good old days, back when I... But it's an, an imperative of recalling what things used to be like. You, you, know, you used to love the Word. You used to love prayer. You used to love fellowship. Remembering those things, but then repenting. This is the second imperative. And by the way, it's not just for an individual, but this is actually for the local church. I don't know. Have you ever seen this happen? I don't think I've ever actually seen this happen. An entire local church repenting. God, we have failed in this area. That's what he's talking about here. D.A. Carson, again, gives a definition of repentance. He says this. What is meant is not merely intellectual change of mind or mere grief, still less doing penance, but a radical transformation of the entire person, a fundamental turnaround involving mind and action, including overtones of grief, which results in fruit-keeping with repentance. Of course, this, all this assumes that man's actions are fundamentally off course and need radical change. So... Repentance uh, accepts Christ's judgment. Lord, you're right about this. I've been wrong. It, it judges itself according to God's word. It grieves over its loss of love. And maybe that's what you need to do this week. I know I have. Grieve over a loss of love. I haven't loved the way I used to love. And then taking appropriate action turning away from sin and taking appropriate action, doing the works they did at first. Now, Jesus isn't simply telling them to do more work. And hear this, do more work. They have works, but they are to do the works they did at first. They had abandoned or minimized certain acts of love and kindness and compassion and care and hospitality. It had become formalism. And so he says, do these works. And there's a story I remember hearing years ago about a, a woman who had undergone just cruel treatment from her husband. 
Her husband was absent, aloof, mean. And she decided really silently that she had had enough, wanted a divorce, and so she went to uh, go see a divorce attorney. And she told the attorney her story and just said, you know, told, told him the treatment she had undergone. And, and she said, she asked the attorney, I want to hurt my husband. How can I hurt my husband the most? And this diabolical attorney, attorney gave her some advice. He said, here's how you can hurt your husband the most. You go back, you cook his favorite meals, you do his laundry with a smile, you write him poetry, you call him, you're sweet to him, you love him. Then after a few months, tell him your intentions. That'll surely inflict the most amount of anguish and pain. So she does. She takes his advice. She goes back and she writes the notes and cooks the meals with a smile and does all these things, but she notices that something actually is changing. Not only is her husband's behavior changing towards her, but her heart is beginning to warm. And lo and behold, she fell in love with her husband all over again. I praise the Lord. I do. That just like the Ephesians, we can be restored, forgiven, but he gives us the prescription. That first love can be rekindled, and lives can be rededicated to Christ. The Holy Spirit can breathe new life into prayer, Bible study, evangelism, worship, fellowship with one another. We can more fully know and abide in the, in the love that God has for us in the gospel. Just bow your heads. I just want you to think about this and just bring this before the Lord and just give you a time to respond. We hear these words that sometimes we don't get enough time to respond. But this is between you and the Lord right now. Just ask him. Maybe you've heard from him what you need to do. Receive his grace. He loves you. He keeps no record of wrongs. Praise the Lord. 1 Corinthians 13. But maybe there needs to be some confession and some repentance. But I do want you to be encouraged that our Lord does offer a remedy, a diagnosis, and a prognosis. Just spend a moment in prayer. Father, I pray that you would do a deep work in our hearts this week. I, I truly, and Lord, I sincerely pray and cry out to you for life transformation. We want life transformation, Lord. We dedicate our lives to you. We rededicate our lives to you. We are clay. You're the potter. Lord, we confess our lack of love and our lovelessness. Help us, Lord, to remember, to repent, and to do 
these works. Lord, for the glory of your name, for the sake of the church, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.